Welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and we are continuing on in our series today on the Sermon on the Mount. This is only the second episode, so if you're just tuning in, you are not far behind. And honestly, each episode can truly stand alone. But I would obviously love you to go back to the previous episode, to the introduction, if you get some time. That would be great. But we are studying Matthew chapters 5 through 7 to work through one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, Jesus And as always, there's going to be lots of links in the show notes for you to study through this text a bit more in your own time too, if you desire to, so you could do as much or as little as you want. The introduction episode, um, I give a lot of good helps at the very end there. If you want to even just, you know, kind of re-listen to that, if you already listened to it, give it a re-listen and maybe get some ideas, but I will put lots of notes. Lots of notes, lots of links in the show notes for you over at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com. And also, I know I always say that I'm going to put notes in the podcast app, the show notes, but I do know that sometimes all podcast apps, wherever you catch Thankful Homemaker, may not have show notes. So always head over to the blog, thankfulhomemaker.com. This series is going to be on, um, I'm going to link it on my blog, on my homepage. So if you look at my main menu right under where it says Thankful Homemaker, there's um, areas that go across there like homemaking and marriage. If you hover over the one that says Christian Living, this whole series will be linked there. So you could find it very easy. Um, That just gives you a quick way to look them up as we build. Obviously, this is only the second episode, so we're not too far yet. But as it builds, it'll be an easier way to catch them all. And again, my number one recommended resource next to God's Word in working through the sermon is Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a really great investment if you're desiring to dig a bit more into the scriptures. You're going to be so glad that you picked up a copy to study along with me, I promise. Okay, so these chapters that we're working through in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, they lay out for us clearly what the Lord desires of us of us as Christians and what our inward and outward desires and actions should look like of those who profess to be in Christ. This sermon clearly lays out for us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. So our text today is Matthew 5, 3, and it reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, a result of this one. And he also said that there is no more more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith than this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is foundational. So as we work through this text today, my hope is that we're going to grasp much more what it truly means to be poor in spirit. These next verses that we're beginning to expound on are typically known as the 
Beatitudes. We're dealing with the first one today, but Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 through 12 are, 12 are typically known as the Beatitudes. This isn't foreign to us because there are other areas of scripture that open with what we would call a beatitude or a blessing. So think here, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners. Or think here, Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 begin with, begins with two beatitudes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the term blessing and then its opposite, curse, are ones that God's covenant people are familiar with. Those of us who are walking with the Lord, those of us in Christ, those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, will experience blessing. Those who are not walking with the Lord will receive his curse and judgment. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the scripture tells us about when God called Abraham, that he promised to make of him a great nation and to bless him and to make his name great. He promised to bless those who bless Abraham and to curse those who dishonored Abraham and in Abraham to, to bless all the families of the earth. We see blessing and cursing at Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, it lays out all God's blessings to his people who live in obedience to his word. And in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 16, it lays out all the curse and judgment that would follow their disobedience. Sinclair Ferguson stated, Blessing is simply fellowship with God, the experience of his covenant promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. It means having a right relationship to God and enjoying him as we should. That is why the opening chapters of the Bible speak of God giving his blessing to his creation and his creatures. And he continues, he said, the Beatitudes then do not focus on what we are to do. Rather, they describe the blessings, the covenant grace and joy that belong to those whose lives show the marks of the kingdom of God, end quote there. So Jesus is not speaking something new in the Beatitudes. These are themes that have been seen throughout the Psalms and Isaiah. Jesus is sharing with us what the blessed life is as it is laid out in God's word. Sinclair Ferguson described it as Jesus is basically preaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that he was speaking against a backdrop where God's word had become clouded. People lost sight of where true blessing was to be found. And we as Christians, we need to hear this reminder again because we get our view lost of where true blessing is to be found. We can look to ourselves and the world and others and take our eyes off of Jesus. True blessing is to be found. First and foremost, this is key. Today's passage is key, is found in being poor in spirit. That's that is primary foundational. That is key. And from there, these are sort of like stepping stones that happen. I don't, I'm not describing that well, but it's just, we're going to go down the list. So when you're poor in spirit, you're going to see your sin and you're going to mourn over your sin. It's going to cause you to become meek. It's going to cause you to um, hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
It's going to cause you to desire to show mercy to others because you've been shown much mercy. It's going to continue to pursue you in purity and grow you in purity. It's going to cause you to become a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. And you're going to be willing to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus. And if you're living a life like that, you will be persecuted for the sake of Jesus because it's countercultural. Your life will be upside down from the world's. So as we begin walking through these next verses, we're going to see that these are marks or the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of God. So I want to go just quickly here into a bit of background into Matthew again. I want to take a look at the beginning and the ending of Matthew's gospel. So in the first chapter of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he draws attention to the sins of God's people. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Again, that was Matthew chapter one, verse 21. So Jesus is saving us from our sins. It's clear we're not earning our own salvation. And then Matthew ends his gospel by drawing our attention to the death of Jesus. The last eight chapters are all dealing with the last week of Jesus's life on earth. Matthew didn't leave us at the end of our, our time here in Matthew chapter 7. He didn't leave us at the end here going, okay, tell us your instructions. Here they are now. Here, or Basically, I'm telling you your instructions. Here they are. Go and do it. This is really important. We can't come away from reading this sermon with a checklist of what we are to do to be accepted by God. This is key, my friend, because the reality is we know this already. We can't. The Sermon on the Mount cannot be properly understood without understanding the cross. The end of the story is important. God doesn't give us a checklist of things we need to do to be accepted by him. He gives us Jesus. We need to not ever lose sight that the of the cross because that is so important for our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. The cross is key in all of our reading of God's word, and it needs to impact us even as we're reading when we're in the Old Testament or the Gospels, just because it hasn't happened yet in the narrative, right? It's there. It's looming. We need to fix our eyes on the cross, and specifically because we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be reminded again and again of the gospel because our thinking can get so performance-based. Um, I'm not accepted by God because I follow the golden rule or I turn the other cheek or I love my enemies. We don't become a Christian by going to church or getting baptized or trying to keep the Ten Commandments. And I believe it was Martin Luther who told his barber friend, and, um, and there's a little book on it called A Simple Way to Pray. He was sharing with his barber friend who asked him how to pray, and Martin Luther, um, one of the recommendations he gave him was to pray through the Ten Commandments. I encourage you, do that in your prayer time. Pray through them, and you're going to realize how quickly we fall short every single day, multiple times through the day. Just take the first two. We don't put God first and foremost over all things, and it just goes downhill from there. So it's not by our good deeds or our own righteousness or our own perceived worthiness. We become a Christian when we throw ourselves at the mercy of the Lord, realizing we have no righteousness of our own and are sinners in need of a Savior. This is what your children need to hear again and again. This is what they need to see lived out in your life, that you understand the free gift of God's grace that saves you and the gift of God's grace that enables you to walk in his ways and obey him and trust him. 
We need Jesus for his righteousness and his forgiveness and his mercy. The gospel tells us we have no right to be in the presence of God. But if we believe in Jesus, who died in our place for the punishment for our sins and granted us his righteousness, we can then enjoy being in God's presence forever. Our acceptance before God is fully by his grace and mercy. It is only because Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve and took on all the punishment for our sin upon himself at the cross and then rose again. By his wounds, we are healed. So that was my little quick Matthew jaunt there, but this is important because Matthew begins his gospel telling us Jesus came to save us from our sins there in Matthew one twenty one, and then his gospel ends with Jesus completing the work he came to do. So, long intro, but important. So as we again begin to work through these verses, we should desire as Christians to do all the sermon calls us to, but not to gain acceptance by God, but because of our great love for him and our desire to glorify him in all we do. So I want to begin by working through what poor in spirit isn't. So let's look at what it's not. It's not being materially poor. Being poor doesn't grant you eternal life. A poor person is not any closer to the kingdom than a rich person. Plus, if it meant to be poor in a material sense, then why would we as Christians desire to relieve the burdens of those in those situations? Why would we want to help the refugees and the homeless and the orphan? Why would we set up shelters to help feed and care for those who are in need and destitute? The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere to pursue material poverty. We know, it says in scripture, it can be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to get caught up in our material blessings and miss our need of the Lord. But it is just as easy for a poor person to be materialistic and miss their need of the Lord. So it's not talking about material poverty. And we're not to be poor spirited. When I say that, I always think of Eeyore. I think of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Um, It's not meaning we're supposed to walk around like Eeyore with, you know, gloom and doom and poor me. Um, A quote I snatched of Eeyore's was, if it's a good morning, which I doubt, um, that would be a real interesting way to greet someone, wouldn't it? Real, real happy there. <laughs> That's not what it means. It does not mean to go around down or depressed um, or just with a sense of self-pity or putting yourself down. James Montgomery Boyce stated in his expositional commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, another good resource there, I'll share that one in the notes too, that being poor in spirit, is it's not being poor spirited or he says, think of it as lacking drive or enthusiasm. He said, just look at the picture of David after a man owned, after a man, oh my goodness, my words are jumbled today. Just let me start that over. Just look at the picture of David as a man after God's own heart. He was ambitious and successful. And again, we're not saying David is perfect. We know that, but David was a man who desired to do what was right. David dealt with the issues before him. He forged a nation out of diverse, jealous tribes and united them successfully enough to be able to drive off all surrounding nations that desired to conquer Israel. He re- James Boyce reminds us that David was not poor-spirited. He says, and yet he epitomized, perhaps far more than any other character in history, what Jesus meant when he said that his followers were to be poor in spirit before God. So poor in spirit, it's not an absence of self-worth. 
God's word tells us we are of great value in 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23. It doesn't mean shy or introverted. You can be shy and introverted and still be prideful. It's not walking around telling people you're humble. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of a time when he was traveling to preach and he arrived at the train station and a man met him and asked for his bag and took it from his hand and the man said to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow. You know, I am a mere nobody, a very unimportant man. Really, I do not count. I'm not a great man in the church. I'm just one of these men who carry the bag for the minister. So the doctor shared on meeting this man, he said, he was anxious that I should know what a humble man he was, how, quote, poor in spirit, yet by his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing he was trying to establish. And he kind of continues here. He talks about Uriah Heep from Charles Dickens' um, book, David Copperfield. He said Uriah Heep would remind people that he was a very humble person. So the man, he tells us, who thus glories in his poverty of spirit, thereby proves he is not humble. That is not being poor in spirit. So we all know these people who speak as if they're nothing. It could be us at times doing this. They, they, they desire for people to see them as wonderful. This attitude is not one of poverty of spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? So let's break down, since it's only one verse too, right? Let's break down the verse together. We're going to walk through some of the terms. So Matthew 5, 3 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed is from the Greek word makarios, and that means, it means to be happy, but not in the usual way based on circumstances. Biblically, it's describing one who's free from daily cares and worries because they know every moment of their lives is designed by their Lord, and they live every moment trusting he is sovereign over all, and they are in the hands of their maker. It's describing a kind of happiness that comes from being in a right relationship with God. True blessing here, right? It is an inward contentment, not based on outward circumstances. We talk a lot about contentment here at Thankful Homemaker. John MacArthur writes that makarios is a defined pronouncement, the assured benefit of those who meet the conditions God requires. And Warren Wearsby shares, he said, imagine how the crowd's attention was riveted on Jesus when he uttered his first word, blessed. He tells us the Latin word for blessed is beatus, and from this comes the word beatitude. This was a powerful word to those who heard Jesus that day. To them, it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. The word was not normally used for humans. It described the kind of joy experienced only by the gods or the dead. Blessed implied an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. This is what the Lord offers those who trust him. The Beatitudes describe the attitudes that ought to be in our lives today, end quote. So the term for blessed, makarios, is an inner peace or happiness that is not produced by circumstances. And as we move forward, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, we can literally translate this from the Greek as blessed are those who recognize they are utterly spiritually helpless. Again, the reminder here, it is not talking about being poor in a worldly sense because the poorest person can be void of all earthly possessions and still not be poor in spirit as Jesus is describing here. 
It is truly spiritual poverty, or as you've heard it said in other places, spiritual bankruptcy. Poor in spirit can be translated beggarly poor, someone who fully needs to depend on another to survive. We can translate it as blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. We are so poor spiritually that we need to rely on help from an outside source. Think of the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We come before the Lord and cry out, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. We need to praise the Lord for bringing us to this place to recognize our utter spiritual poverty before him, because this is the place where we find our true blessing, because this is the place where we come to see our great need of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson warns that we are urged today to develop almost every other kind of spirit except poverty of spirit. There's much teaching on how to be filled with the spirit, but where can we learn what it means to be spiritually emptied, emptied of self-confidence, self-importance, self-righteousness? The sad truth, he continues, is that we know so little of the blessing of which Christ speaks and which he gives, because we are all too often full of ourselves and our own means of blessing. In fact, there is no sadder commentary on our lack of this spiritual poverty than the readiness so many of us have to let others know what we think. But the man who is poor in spirit is the man who has been silenced by God and seeks only to speak what he has learned in humility from him. End quote. That one will definitely be in the show notes. That's an excellent quote from Mr. Ferguson. So picture here the saints of old understanding and giving us examples of what it means to be poor in spirit. Let's look at Isaiah in chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah states, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has a vision of the temple and he sees his utter sinfulness and his great need of mercy as he sees the perfect holiness of God. Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We remember Peter when he sees himself as sinful and broken before the Lord. Luke 5, 8, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But the beauty of the gospel doesn't leave us here. We'd be hopeless and utterly helpless except for Jesus. Our Lord is merciful and gracious and forgiving, and he calls us to himself. I pray as we work through this text, we're going to see our need for Jesus Ask the Lord to reveal the sinfulness of our hearts and to give us eyes to see his goodness and mercy and forgiveness shown to us through the cross. As we rightly view ourselves and as we rightly see Jesus, it enables us through the work of his spirit in us to follow him and to proclaim the beauty of the gospel to others. This very first beatitude is the doctrine of justification. It shows how we are fully unable to please God in our own strength or by any human effort. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you haven't taken a listen to my podcast yet on sanctification, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Please do. I walk through the doctrine of justification in it. And let me read um, 
from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I want to read the definition of justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight for the sake of the righteousness of Christ alone, which is credited to us and received by faith alone. So remember how we've heard that justification can at times be referred to as just as if I'd never sinned. A better way of saying that is just as if I'd always obeyed. And Jerry Bridges tells us that's the way we stand before God, clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's an excellent episode, just a good reminder of our standing in Christ. And the reality, I think of justification because this is my most important example, the reality that we are dead. We are dead in our sin. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves in any way. So a lot of times you hear that analogy of the life preserver. That's not accurate. And I want to say this again so we grasp this. We are dead, like at the bottom of the ocean dead. So a life preserver thrown to us isn't going to help us because somebody dead at the bottom of the ocean isn't going to get to the top and grab the life preserver for help. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. We need new life. So very important to grasp the doctrine of justification and then the doctrine of sanctification. And adoption is in that mix too. That's key too. So go take a listen or re-listen to that episode. I think it's episode 84 on sanctification. Okay, that was my commercial break. So this first beatitude, and it, it basically, as Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, is the key to all that follows. There is a purposeful order to the beatitudes listed in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. They are qualities of all true Christians. They are humble and broken before God. They know they are sinners who seek his mercy. They desire to learn about the Lord because they hunger and thirst after righteousness they're pure in heart, merciful, peacemakers, and they rejoice even when they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. By God's grace, they have been transformed. These are the ones who are to inherit the kingdom, those who humbly and meekly seek after the Lord. And as we move into the next half of Matthew 5:3, it tells us, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's the theirs? those who are poor in spirit. You can be the richest, most powerful person in the world and miss out on the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who realize and confess their spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. Charles Spurgeon shares on this text, spiritual poverty is both commanded and commended. It is the basis of Christian experience. No one begins a right who has not felt poverty of spirit. Yet even to this first sign of grace is the kingdom given in present possession. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The question in heaven's kingdom is not, are you a peer, but are you poor in spirit? Those who are of no account in their own eyes are of the blood royal of the universe. These alone have the principles and the qualifications for a heavenly kingdom. May I be such, he states, end quote there. Matthew is the only gospel to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. The other gospels use the phrase kingdom of God. Most commentators agree that since Matthew's target audience was primarily Jews, he avoided using the name God so as not to offend the Jews who traditionally neither pronounced or wrote the name God. 
So F.B. Meyer has a great quote. He stated, earthly thrones are generally built with steps up to them. The remarkable thing about the thrones of the eternal kingdom is that the steps are all down to them. We must descend if we would reign, stoop if we would rise, gird ourselves to wash the feet of the disciples as a common slave in order to share the royalty of our divine master. And Sinclair Ferguson really kind of said it best here. If you would be rich and possess a kingdom, you must first lose all, including yourself and your self-centeredness and become poor in spirit. So what should be the character of those of us who profess to be Christian? We're only taking one character trait of believers at a time, but these are characteristics that are to be true of what every Christian ought to be. No different as the fruit of the spirit is to be evident in the lives of believers, so are the Beatitudes. So... These are all to be evident in the lives of those who are citizens of God's kingdom. The spirit who works in us to equip us with different gifts also works in us these Christian graces that we're going to work through over the next months together. James Montgomery Boyce shared that the principle suggested by Matthew 5.3 is that there must be an emptying in our lives before there can be a filling. We need repentance before conversation, a recognition of worthlessness in God's sight, before salvation. And if you're listening to this before October 31st, 2020, I have a post up on uh, resources to help you celebrate the Reformation because I'm going to talk about Martin Luther in a minute. So it kind of jogged my memory to that. So I'll try to remember to link to that in these show notes. But an experience um, James Boyce gave of this emptying was Martin Luther. He stated when Luther finally realized he was unable in his own ability to please God and emptied himself of all pride and desire to earn his salvation is when the Lord touched his heart and showed him the true meaning of salvation by grace through faith. He went on to state that we too need to be an empty vessel. When we come to this point, the Lord will fill us with the life of Jesus supernaturally, and we will begin to live the standards of the Sermon on the Mount by the power of the one who gave them and who himself lived them perfectly in this world. I'm going to keep paraphrasing Dr. Boyce because it was just really helpful. So he reminded us that It is unnatural to man and it's impossible in our own strength to create a true poverty of spirit because our hearts are corrupt and we're always going to find ourselves comparing ourselves to others. We're pretty good at this. We're going to see a prideful person and though we're proud, we're going to think I'm not that proud or we're going to see someone with a bad temper and think, well, I have a temper, but it's not that bad. We easily and too quickly tend to think too highly of ourselves guilty here, (laughs) but we don't need to look to others for self-evaluation. This is key. We know this too. I'm not telling new truths. I'm reiterating old truths that need to be pounded in our heads and our hearts continually. We need to fix our eyes on God and see him reflected in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is where we learn true humility, a true sense of our need. And when we so clearly see his holiness and our sinfulness, we're going to be like Isaiah stated in verse five, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God, look at Him, and the more we look at Him, the more hopeless shall we feel by ourselves and in and of ourselves, and the more shall we become poor in spirit. 
Look at him. Keep looking at him. Look at the saints. Look at the men who have been most filled with the Spirit and used. But above all, look again at him, and then you will have nothing to do to yourself. It will be done. You cannot truly look at him without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness. End quote. Pretty powerful quote there. So friend, as we work through these Beatitudes together, and really this whole sermon, I pray that we will find true freedom that is there in our self-forgetfulness. And I also pray that we're going to see more and more of Jesus and find ourselves drawn closer and closer to him. And Spurgeon said it best, or he said, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. So Jesus is enough always. Thank you again so much for your time today. The full show notes will be over at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com. And then don't forget, if you go to that main menu that's under my blog header, under Thankful Homemaker, and you find the link for Christian Living, hover over, and you'll find all the episodes there. That's where I'll continue to post them. So they'll be in one spot for you. Our next time together, we're going to be working through Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It's going to come out on Tuesday, October 27th. So make sure you subscribe to the blog and I'll link to do that in the show notes. That way you, you get a note. I just shoot a quick email in your inbox when the next episode is up. And plus blog subscribers get access to the free library and there's all kinds of various um, goodies and printables there for you free to help you as, as, as a homemaker. So, and also if you get a moment and you have a couple minutes, if you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen into the podcast, I would so greatly appreciate it. And hit the subscribe, if you don't already in your podcast catcher, again, hit that subscribe button. That way your the episodes will just pop up in whatever podcast or um, podcast app that combining my words podcast and catcher there, whatever podcast catcher that you use to listen and to thank for Homemaker. I'm an iTunes gal, so it, I, it just, all of them, all my favorites just pop in there and I love it. And my resource this week, I got a different one on the YouTube video that I put up for this, but my resource this week for you guys, because I just listened to it this morning before I recorded this, it's October 10th, to 10th today when I'm recording this, and the Luther in Real Time podcast came out through Ligonier. So I'll link to it in the show notes, but you can, if you put Luther in Real Time, you're going to find it. It's most excellent. They are taking, they are walking through the history of Martin Luther, um, and they're literally doing it in real time. So when they posted October's 10th today, that was the day that he put together the 95 Theses, and maybe he nailed it on the door that day even. So it's just kind of happening as it's happening. And it's kind of neat because they sort of reenact it. So I love that part of it. It's just the drama and the noise in the background. It reminds me of that, um, oh, what was that called? Focus on the Family, their radio theater dramas. We just love those. I probably need to go back and grab them again because they are so fun. But now I am rambling. So I just appreciate y'all. I'm grateful for you. And I'm just glad you're here with me, friend. And I pray you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.